questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. As you know, I lived in Mexico City in the early 1990s. I found the country and its people fascinating. The culture, nature, its ancient architecture, and last but not least, its mystery. There's so much folklore and legends, but many say that a lot of what is being passed down to new generations via oral tradition may have happened after all. What about the Mapimi Silent Zone, a desert patch in Durango, Mexico? In July 1970, the United States launched an Athena test rocket from the Green River Launch Complex in Utah towards the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The rocket lost control and fell in the Mapimi Desert region. It was carrying two small containers of Cobalt-57, a reactive element. Legends include strange magnetic anomalies that prevent radio transmission, mutations of flora and fauna, extraterrestrial visitations, and a Mexican pilot who supposedly first reported that his radio experienced unexplained malfunctions while flying over the area in the 1930s. The area is sometimes compared to the Bermuda Triangle, as both are located between parallels 26 and 28. But tonight, it's the X-Files meets ancient aliens. Many Americans do not know that a whole other world exists right across their southern border. We'll examine the magic, the mysteries, and the miracles of Mexico. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is author Robert Biddo, who has over 30 years of experience in Mexico. As a student, as an employee for a large multinational corporation, and as an owner of an imports business, he was a professional researcher by trade from 1990 to 1993. And in addition to his MBA and BBA, he holds a master's degree in Latin American studies from the University of New Mexico. Robert was president of the San Diego chapter of Mensa from 2015 to 2016. Robert has also been running a podcast, a YouTube channel, Mexico Unexplained, since January of 2016. His website is MexicoUnexplained.com. Robert Biddo joins us directly from San Diego, California. Hello, Robert M. Welcome to Veritas. Hi, Mel. I've been a fan for years. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you on. And Robert, it's a treat for me. I have to admit, I was telling you offline, because Mexico has a, such a special place in my heart. I lived there in the early 90s, and you and I spoke a few weeks ago, and we have a lot of things in common, don't we? We, yes. you know, we both worked in the corporate world with a multinational uh, business there. We were sent to Mexico in the 90s. I believe you also. Uh, we then yes. became entrepreneurs and we still have business and still visit Mexico. Tell us of your story and how everything began for you in Mexico. Well, I grew up in New Mexico. I was born in the same hospital as Donald Trump. I hope you don't get uh, too much flack for that. I'm used to but, it. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> I um, grew up in New Mexico. We moved out of New York when I was seven. So I grew up in New Mexico and then... Um, from there, I did my university work and went to Mexico as an exchange student in the late 80s. And I was surrounded by a lot of art and, and arts and crafts, folk art and everything. And that put a bug in my mind to maybe one day traffic in, in folk art and arts and crafts. 
But um, I got my degrees and then I got hired by a big multinational corporation whose headquarters was for Mexico was in Mexico City. And like you said, we talked about that off air. And um, so I was there for a little while in the mid 90s. And I came back to the States after being posted in Brazil for a little while. And um, after a few years, I got tired of the corporate life. And I had that whole idea of the arts and crafts business in my mind. And in 1999, I started the Sueños Latin American Imports. And I've been doing that ever since. And the business has has allowed me to go to the really unknown places of Mexico and other parts of Latin America, too. But um, specifically in Mexico, I go to places to get unique merchandise that no one else has. And while I've been doing that, I've come across a lot of interesting stories. I've seen some pretty weird things. And um, there's a lot that is in the Mexican press, the Spanish language press, I noticed that never makes it out of Mexico. I'm not, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the magazine called Muy Interesante. Of course. Yeah, I was, I had that magazine on a flight back to the United States. I was, you know, settling into my airline seat with that magazine and I flipped it open and saw crop circles that I'd never seen before. And an article from a Mexican scientist talking about crop circles. And I thought, wow, you know, there's a whole world down there, a whole world in Mexico that people don't know about in the English speaking world. And so a few years ago, about four years ago, I came up with Mexico Unexplained, the podcast and the YouTube channel. And I've written several books since then, mostly compiling what I've what I talk about on the show. So that's basically my story. There's a lot to cover. There's so many things to pick from. As I always say, Mexico has the equivalent of so many things. There's uh, two Bigfoot creatures. There are lake monsters like the Loch Ness Monster. There are witches. There are shape-shifting creatures, kind of like um, the Skinwalker here in the United States. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's the Zona del Silencio, the Zone of Silence. And that approximates the Bermuda Triangle. So there's a lot to talk about. Just what one uh, quick story I want to tell uh, the audience. I told you this story because it happened right at the entrance of the headquarters of where you used to work. But uh, I always talk about the lady that foretold my future and th the fact that the first time I met her, I had a pen on my pocket and she asked me f for that pen and she brought it the next day. And that's when the whole thing started. But I've never told the story. I was walking towards that office where you used to work and outside there were hundreds of people walking. And I saw this pen on the floor and nobody was taking it. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll pick it up and I'll take it. I mean, this is a mansion in the middle of Manhattan. You're not going to go like, who does this belong to? Because everybody's going to say it's mine. So I took right. it and I've never lost that pen. But that is the pen that I've always used. I call it my lucky pen. But you, as a child, you grew up in New Mexico. Yes. You had some stories about your childhood. Why don't we go there first? Well, when I was 10 years old, I thought I saw La Llorona. And um, for those who do not know the legend of La Llorona, there was a movie that came out earlier this year that I have kind of a weird connection with. We can talk about that later. But um, basically, La Llorona, it's a legend that goes back hundreds of years to colonial times in Mexico. And it's a story of a beautiful young woman in a small town and she married a handsome guy and they had a couple kids and the man was in the military or he was away for a while, depending on the version of the story that you hear. And she heard that he was cheating on her. So to get revenge against her cheating husband, she took her two children to the river, to a stream and drowned the children when she threw them into the water, she had second thoughts. The kids were struggling in, in the currents. She had second thoughts and tried to rescue the children, but it was too late. And so her ghost, her spirit, now lurks 
the banks of stream beds, arroyos, acequias, any place where there's running water. She could be there to snatch you. And that was a story that, you know, an urban legend, like a fireside campfire story that we heard in New Mexico all the time. And there are flash floods that go through dry arroyos that, you know, they go by fast and you don't even know there could, it could be raining 15, 20 miles away and you're in the sunshine playing in the creek bed. And then all of a sudden a rush of water comes at you. And I've seen that as a little kid. So the story, you know, it's one of those cautionary tales that parents tell their kids supposedly, right. To, um, prevent them from playing in dangerous situations or in a dangerous place, um, near potential flash floods. But when I was crossing an arroyo, we were going, it was a field trip to my teacher's house. And because the New Mexico school systems are, you know, underfunded or whatever, there wasn't a school bus that we could take to go to the teacher's house for her afternoons, you know, at her swimming pool that she promised us. It was in late May of, I believe, 1979. And we had to take city buses. So we had to take like three city buses to go to her house. And at the last bus stop, we had to cross an arroyo, a bridge over this arroyo called the Han Arroyo in Albuquerque. We crossed the bridge. And I swear, one of the kids in my class let out a very nice New Mexican expletive in Spanish, which I'm not going to repeat on air. Um, But he pointed and we all looked and there was a woman in the arroyo who was hunched over and she was climbing up the embankment. And we were surprised. We knew who it was. We thought we did. And we took off running and we ran and ran and ran and we were laughing and and we like stumbled over each other. We were just like exhausted from running and laughing because we really couldn't even believe what we saw. And um, so that's my experience. And then I was anticipating the movie that was coming out earlier this this year called The Curse of La Llorona. And I'm in the theater and I'm watching it and I'm looking around in the background of this film. And it's like, hey, there's merchandise from my business in this movie. And what happened is and it's merchandise that I only carry. So I know it was mine. And it seemed like in about six scenes, there was merchandise that was familiar to me. And then I had figured out that the prop master of that film had bought merchandise from me a year and a half before and said that the movie was called The Children. And I guess that was the working title for the movie or the secret title for the movie. But it's really strange how things, you know, 40 years later, I'm in a theater in San Diego and watching this movie about a legend that I'm connected with. And there's my stuff that it's on the screen. Right. You did not know. You did not know. I had no idea. Wow. I had no idea until I was in the theater. Yeah. Very interesting. My my introduction to La Llorona was in the early 70s. My parents took us to the movie theater. I remember this movie because... It was in Spanish, and it was during the golden age of Mexican cinema. Yeah. And they were presented it. I was living in Puerto Rico at the time. And I don't know if you know who El Santo is yeah, or yeah, was. The wrestler. The, the wrestler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he was yeah. like a legend there. <laughs> and it was El Santo uh, meets or fights La Llorona. But it was a very scary movie. As a child, as a six, seven-year-old child, I oh, always yeah. remember that. And then I had uh, younger siblings who came after, and I would just scare them at night saying, Ay, mis hijos. You know how, they, how it goes. <laughs> and still to this day, my my brothers who are in their 40s now, they tell me I never forget that. And I still get scared <laughs> when I hear that. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So let's start dissecting your book, because there's a lot to to talk about, but I want to start with something that fascinates me, and I want to learn more, the Mapimi Silent Zone. You dedicate a chapter, but why don't you tell us what this is? Well, it's a biosphere reserve in Mexico, um, and it was set up 40-something years ago because 
the Chihuahua Desert, it's a very fragile ecosystem, and this area is very pristine. So they set up this ecosystem reserve, and how I learned about the whole zone of silence is I started poking around the internet, and I saw somebody had posted diaries of a park ranger who used to work in that biosphere, um, in that protected zone. And this, uh, this park ranger's name was Hector Alvarez, and he disappeared in 2013. In April of 2013, people showed up for work and they saw his car there in the parking lot, but Hector was nowhere to be found. But they discovered his diaries and then they made it out to the internet. And that's how I found out about this. And, you know, like I said earlier, there's a lot of material that's not in English. It's out there in Spanish. So I'm bringing that to the English speaking world. But I saw these diaries in Spanish and the guy was describing triangles in the sky that were multicolored. Um, there was an incident at the park ranger station where all the computers went out. There was before the, all the computers went out, there was a white noise that the computer, each computer was, was emanating this white, this white noise was coming from these computers, even the ones that were turned off. And the, the motherboards were all fried and they couldn't fix the computer. So there were some weird things that were happening. There was a triangle that supposedly was burned into the wall. Um, he saw strange lights in the sky or whatever. And then, like I said, he disappeared. So, but as you mentioned earlier, there, there have been reports of anomalies in this area, at least into uh, from the 1930s. There was, you know, like I said, there's counterparts to everything, it seems like, in, in Mexico. So this is their Bermuda Triangle. They also had a Charles Lindbergh, and his name was Francisco Sarabia Tinoco. And he, he was, you know, just like Charles Lindbergh, he, had, he was a pioneer pilot. He had records and he experimented with different types of planes. And he, whenever he flew over that area, his compass would go crazy and he would, his radio wouldn't work. And unfortunately, he died in a, an air show, actually outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States, but uh, when his plane crashed. So he survived the zone of silence, but he didn't survive American airspace. But he was the earliest person to report those kind of anomalies like that. And then in the 60s and 70s, that's when, like you mentioned, the missile uh crashed there. It was supposed to go to White Sands, but it went hundreds of miles off course. The year before that missile crashed, there was a meteor that crashed there, and they called that the Allende meteorite. And so then people started to say that this area had vortexes and strange magnetic anomalies that would attract things like the missile, like the meteor, and would attract also extraterrestrial craft. And People for years have been citing in UFO lore what are called the Nordics, the tall blonde aliens. And they've usually spotted the Nordics in, um, in groups of three, two men and a woman. And they're very helpful. They're not nefarious. They're not like the greys. They want to abduct you or anything. They're very helpful and very kind. And they speak perfect, flawless Spanish. That's another thing that in each of the encounters that you hear. So there's that going on. People believe that after that missile crash, the United States government took a really deep interest into the area and some of the buildings that are in this biosphere reserve and some of the restricted areas that are restricted to supposedly protect some endangered plants and animals are really restricted because NASA has built or the other parts of the U.S. government have built secret research bases. And also, if we can keep going, some people allege that this area is also, it also serves as um, a place where there are openings to the underground. And for centuries, for thousands of years, actually, 
Mexicans have believed that there's an underground world. And there's a group of researchers, of paranormal researchers, who believe that, that believes that there are uh, there, there's a group of people called the Yellow Maya that used to that used to live above ground and went underneath the surface, and they live underneath this zone of silence. So, Mel, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And in addition, you also mentioned this too that there's strange flora and fauna too mutations that people find so there's a lot of stuff there by the way there's a movie i just found out called silencio and it uh, stars joe noble my favorite character of the tv series french and it's based on this it's in the zone of silence and it, it, it i believe the movie starts with the missile going all the way there i mean what are the chances yeah a missile can malfunction and go but you know why that area have you heard of what's happening there right now? Because I get researchers who have told me, hey, Mel, do you want to go there? And uh, I don't know. I have heard that it's protected by the military, protected by the United States military, too. I haven't confirmed that. Have you heard that? I've heard those two things, yes. And there are tour groups that go down there. There's um, Johanna Diaz Vargas. He has a pretty big paranormal following in Mexico. And I believe he takes people down there maybe once or twice a year. They haven't um, come across things. And a lot of people are disappointed when they go down there and they just see desert or whatever. But there are a lot of researchers who do go down there. And according to what I've heard, sometimes the, sometimes the zone shifts. So where you think it is, you'll be driving along the road nearby and then all of a sudden your car will die or the radio will go weird so um it's not completely contained in one area so they can't really restrict people from experiencing the whole thing i don't think there are certain areas where you absolutely cannot go though the following is not paranormal but it's something else that i it's in my bucket list I'm talking about the, the world's largest crystals in the, I forgot the name, the Nika Mountain in Chihuahua, the Nika Caves of Crystals. There are expeditions that you can go on down there, but you have to wear special suits because the temperature is always 136 degrees. Jeez. Have you studied this at all? No, it's a, it sounds like a topic for a future show. You know, like I always say, there there's a never-ending supply of of show material coming out of Mexico. I can be doing this weekly show for 20 more years and not cover everything. So I have to put that one on my, on my list of future shows. I'll be jumping around because Mexico has so much to offer. But I remember two, three years ago, we, my family and I, we went to Cancun. And I remember mm -hmm. going from the hotel to Chichen Itza. And one thing that struck me was that, you know, people say the Mayans are gone. The Mayas are gone. They're not. They're, they're, no. Some of them are still there. But, oh, of yeah. course, from the hotel to the area, there's a lot of, you know, poor areas. I mean, that is just customary mm -hmm. in Mexico. But one thing right. that struck me was the happiness of these people, the happiness of the children playing on the streets. I would stop the car and start talking to people. And they're just so wonderful and happy in that area of the world. From the time that you lived there, do you remember any stories? They might not be in your book, but little stories, because I have a few that i like to share, uh, because this is a show about Mexico, that you have that you'd like to share. Gosh, where do we start? I don't... <laughs> if you can narrow it down, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of different things. Okay, well, here's, a, here's an interesting one. This, this is the first one that popped to my mind. I was in the back country of Michoacan, in the state of Michoacan, that's where some of the best arts and crafts can be found in Mexico. In Michoacan, yeah. Jalisco, Oaxaca. Those, yes, okay, yeah. So you're familiar with some of that stuff. Yeah, so I'm in the, the back country of Michoacan, and Spanish is spoken less and less. They, they speak mostly in those villages, Purepecha, which is a language isolate. It's not yeah. related to any other language. And... It's also called Tarascan in English or Tarasco in Spanish. And 
I was with a driver because I hire drivers, you know, whenever I go down there and I go to village, to, you know, village to village buying stuff, I'll hire a driver for the day. And so we'll drive around a truck or whatever. And so he was speaking to me about how he drove Japanese tourists around in the back country. And the signs were bilingual in Purepecha and Spanish. Okay. And so whenever there was a pyramid or a ruin, the sign would say ruinas, which is ruins in Spanish, or underneath it, then they'd have a, an icon of a pyramid. And then underneath ruinas and that icon was Yakata. And Yakata is a pyramid or temple in Purepecha. That's the word. And so the Japanese tourist was with my driver saying, why are the why are the signs in Spanish and Japanese? And then the guy said, what? The driver said, what? And the Japanese tourist said, well, in my language, Yakata is a temple. An old temple is a Yakata. And that got me thinking, wow, is there a connection between Japan and Western, the Pacific area, the Western part of Mexico? But things like that, little tiny things like that, I could not get in an academic setting or, you know, I, the only way that I would be exposed to something like that is traveling in the back country and sitting next to a guy who's been driving people around for years. And then that sort of thing sparks my curiosity for further investigation. So yeah, there's a ton of stories like that. You know, it's incredible how we'll open doors. For example, what you just said recently, somebody now we were discussing World War II and the wind talkers and the fact that we had Native Americans who, you know, had a specific way of very easy to break. And Purepecha and, and the wind talkers here, apparently a lot of their language comes from Japanese. And the Japanese were able to break that code because they found out that they had a lot of similarities in their language. So it makes you wonder, how did they come here? But I still go to Mexico. I have properties there. I have business there. And I know a lot of people who speak Purepecha. And sometimes I sit down and I say, teach me this, teach me that. But I always like to know people's origins and how they came all the way to the northern part of the border. And the sad part, and I don't mean to bring this up in, in a, what we want to be a paranormal show tonight. But I asked them, you know, so why did you come all the way here? And they're the invisible people. They're the Native Americans of Mexico. The government does not even recognize it. They're almost invisible. You see them, if you go to Mexico City, you see a lot of these women carrying babies. And those babies are for rent. They rent them in order to survive because they don't have anywhere. There's no welfare. There's no work. They cannot vote. So what they do from a very early childhood, they start being trained in, on being business people. So they come all the way to the northern border where the tourism is or, you know, Cancun and so on. And that's what they do. They go there and they become business people. They provide services, sell stuff on the beach. But it's sad to see how they're almost invisible. Well, you know what? It is changing. And it's it's only been changing in the past decade or so. And the change has been rapid as far as recognizing indigenous um, communities and Afro-Mexican communities. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, Veracruz. Yeah, exactly. And also the Costa Chica of, of Oaxaca, where there were once big plantations, sugar plantations mostly. And so the government now is recognizing indigenous communities and Afro-Mexican communities. And there was even a law passed recently, like within the past few years, that gives the law gives indigenous people within I think 20 or 25 different language groups, the ability to have services in their own language. But the, the government of Mexico set this up without providing the infrastructure. So if somebody speaks, let's say, Seri, a language in uh, Sonora, you know, in the desert coast of Sonora, they're going to have a hard time getting services in that language because Everything is not set up yet, but it looks like they're making an attempt. And on the next census, you can 
classify yourself as Afro-Mexican for the very, very first time ever. So um, they're, they're slowly getting around to acknowledging that, but 97% of the country speaks Spanish. Only 3% of the country knows their indigenous language and no other. So most of the indigenous people are bilingual, but there is a small fraction that still do not speak Spanish. And that's the poor, more remote areas. You know, as you say, and they're very proud. They're very proud of their heritage. I mean, they're always yeah. speaking their their language, Budapecha. Uh, mm -hmm. And then when when I come along, they you can tell that boom, they have to switch to Spanish, mm -hmm. but they, they 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 are more comfortable speaking that way. But let's let's look at your book here, for example, uh, Montezuma. Everybody talks about Montezuma, the revenge of Montezuma. <laughs> What are the eight omens of Montezuma and the end of the Aztec Empire? Well, right before the conquest, um, the emperor, there were quite a few things that happened. There was, for example, the temple of Huitzilopochtli, the, the god of war, he, that burned. There was a comet in the sky. There was, um, I believe there was, there was a crane that was found in Lake Texcoco that had an obsidian mirror on its on its forehead and the obsidian mirror supposedly showed a future of these men wearing metal riding gigantic deer that's what they interpreted it as but of course we know that the that's the gigantic deers you know that's the gigantic deer is the horse And the metal men, those are the conquistadores in their armor. And, um, yeah, so there were these omens that happened before, well, in the, the last days of the reign of Montezuma. And supposedly they foretold the end of the empire. So, yeah, that, those were pretty interesting. I always remember the story of Malinche. She was a slave. And... Um, She was the translator that when Cortez... Hernán Cortez came, was the translator. Yeah. Right, right. Right. So when Hernán Cortez um, marched into Tenochtitlan as a guest, he entered the capital of the Aztec Empire as a guest on November 8th, 1519. We just passed 500 years, the 500 year anniversary of that. So he... he Um, walked into the city with, <clears throat> excuse me, he walked into the city with a translator and the woman knew how to speak Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, and she also knew how to speak Maya. And she was a slave that was sold to the Maya area. When Cortez landed in Mexico on the coast, on in the Gulf of Mexico, He met up with a priest, a Spanish priest who was living there among the Maya, and Malinche was in that village. And so Malinche knew how to speak uh, Maya and Nahuatl. And when Cortez was in that village, there were emissaries that came from the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, and they were speaking Nahuatl. And the priest who was living among the Maya was like, I can't communicate with these people. But then Malinche turned around and started talking to them. And then, so this is how it went. The Aztec emissaries talked to Malinche in Nahuatl. Then Malinche talked to the shipwrecked Spanish priest in Maya, in the Maya dialect. And then the Spanish priest talked to Cortes. And she so was then, the daughter of a chief, of a cacique, almost right. like Avatar, the movie. Right. So she was captured and sold into slavery, you know, far away from her homeland. And then they took her on the, the journey to Tenochtitlan. And by the time that she arrived, by the time that they arrived, months and months later, she had mastered Spanish. So there was no need to go from Nahuatl to Maya to Spanish and then back around again. She was very um, adept at learning languages. She knew a couple of other languages, too. So um, she was a very interesting woman caught in a very strange situation 
and she was faced with very difficult choices. And she was allowed, she was the only woman possibly in history to be able to, who was allowed to look at the emperor straight in the eyes and address the emperor because she was translating. So she had to go from Spanish to Nahuatl. So she had to look right at the emperor and talk to him. And that was unprecedented. And she is, she has some really bad nicknames in Mexico to this day because some people see her as a traitor, right? Betrayed. But then some people, because she had a baby with Cortez, some people see her as the mother of a new race, La Raza Cosmica the blend of indigenous and European, the whole, you know, she is the mother of Mexico. But, you know, like I said, they, or like you said, they look at her as, some people look at her as a traitor. So, a very interesting woman. It is. And when she disappeared because she was sold into slavery, her mother staged a funeral to explain the sudden disappearance. But the reason why I brought this up is because when I was down there, I heard that term a lot. Ah, Malinche, Malinche, this and that, and Malinchista. Uh Malinchista. Why can you explain to me? (laughs) And if we went to a store, I went with a friend, and then there was this shampoo made in Mexico or a shampoo made in the United States. And he said, people pick the one in the United States, and when they do that, they're called Malinchista (laughs) because of what happened to this girl, Malinal. That was her original name, La Malinche, right? Yeah, it's 500 years ago, and still people remember. It's <laughs> right. amazing. Yeah. But yeah, she was a woman faced with very difficult choices. And, uh, you know, you have to admire her for, for what she did in a way. I mean, I don't know. It depends on, I guess, how emotional you want to get about it. But a uh, very interesting story nonetheless. I don't know if Vic, our friend who provides us with a, a lot of comics every week, might be upset by me saying this, but I'll say it. He has a lot of contact with people there, a lot of contact with uh, native tribes and so on. Years ago, he sent me some pictures, and apparently he went to another province in Mexico and met with somebody there. But apparently they have contact with an underground race, what we call the Nordics, if you want to call them. But apparently they describe them. I think he had a picture. And the person has absolutely no melanin, white hair, just completely. I've described this in another story of somebody else. But what you hear, the proverbial white hair or blonde hair, white, and apparently they come all the way from, there are caverns underground, and these caverns communicate all over the world. And apparently they come every so often and they communicate with these elders through Mexico to talk about what's happening in the world have you heard of these stories? Oh, yes. Um, it seems like of all the alien races, the Nordics pop up all the time in Mexico. In fact, one of the – and we don't know whether they're coming from underground or above or whatever. I mean, some I've heard, you know, just like what you said exactly, word for word, that they're coming from under the ground. But then you also hear that they're flying craft. Whether the craft come from underground, we don't know, or they're – from outside the Earth's atmosphere, I don't know. Um, some people allege, and this has been uh, talked about in Mexico for thousands of years, that the volcanoes are portals to the underground world. And um, the Nordics, yeah, they're all over the place. It seems like they're the most popular or the most seen alien, so to say, uh, species in Mexico. In fact, um, it's a chapter in my book, and it's one of my most popular shows. Uh, in the mid-50s, there was a taxi driver um, who was, his name was Salvador Villanueva Medina, I believe. He was abducted. Um, and it's actually, it predates pretty much any other abduction that I can see. It could it could be the very first report of somebody supposedly flying on on an alien craft, and the pilot of the craft, the the people he met, were all the tall blonde Nordics. In fact, he thought when his taxi broke down, he thought that these people were Americans; they were gringos. But 
they weren't your average everyday gringos. He found out later. Have you seen all the pictures that are out there and video of the UFOs? And I'm saying UFOs openly. I mean, it could be anything. But you have this cigar shaped. You have these lights that go in and out of the Popocatépetl volcano and the Ixtacihuatl too. Yeah, you know, in fact, there was um, there's a a show in in the mornings, kind of like Good Morning America, and it's for Mexico, and it has millions and millions of viewers. And because Popocatépetl has been erupting lately, they have a video camera on the volcano, and during the show, like connected with the weather forecast or whatever, they'll shoot to Pop. I mean, to Popo to show, you know, the latest eruptions or whatever. And on live television, a cigar-shaped UFO came out of the volcano. And that's on the internet. You can look it up. But that was, millions of people saw that live happening. Yeah, just go, and, go folks, go to Google Images. Just type Mexican volcanoes. You have Popocatepetl, the biggest one. You have the Ista. And the rest of them, and then go to Google Images and put UFO. And you'll see uh, an incredible amount of, of images and even videos of those places. So it happens everywhere. Why do you think? Do you really think that? Why a volcano? Is this the main artery towards the underground? Well, it would make sense, right? I mean, you would think so. Where does the volcano, the vent, go? Huh? So, I, I mean, geologists will tell us that there's a pool of magma or whatever steam vents that come up from the center of the earth or the mantle or wherever, and that's where we, how we get volcanoes. But um, I don't know what's coming out of there. Uh, I don't know where it would lead to. But like I said, people in Mexico for thousands of years, going back to the Olmecs, going back as far as we know, They've believed that people have lived underground and the volcanoes are the portals or caves, caves or volcanoes, or in the Maya area, cenotes. And you've probably oh, yeah. seen those, those sinkholes with water in them, the, well, the big wells. So they believe that those places are portals to this other world. Yeah, very interesting. Now, there's another one I really, really regret not having visited Las momias de Guanajuato, the mummies of Guanajuato. What is that? Why is that place so special? Well, it's nothing really paranormal. It's just, it's very curious. The, the place is very curious. And you mentioned Santo before. One of his movies was Santo versus the mummies of Guanajuato. Yes, right. <laughs> so, well, what happened is they, in Mexico, they used to have a tax that you had to pay when your relatives died, you had to pay a, a tax for them to remain buried. So if you didn't pay the tax, their bodies were exhumed. So that was like perpetual extortion. They did away with the tax, I believe, in the 1950s. But um, certain municipalities were charging this tax. And when people couldn't pay the tax, they dug up the bodies and in Guanajuato, because of the soils and air and different combinations, people were being preserved. So they would dig up the bodies and people were saying, oh, my gosh, what do we, you know, we don't have bones. They used to dispose of the bones. We have people who were fully intact, you know, like certain Catholic saints that, you know, are incorrupt, as they say. But because of these different conditions these people were well, their bodies were well preserved. And so they decided to have a museum and have these people on display. And then there's a whole culture around this. And like I said, there's movies, uh, you can buy mummy candy outside the museum. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Nothing paranormal, just, um, something kind of creepy. And there's legends, too, that some of the mummies come alive and, and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty fascinating place. Guanajuato is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's one of my favorite places to go. I regret 
that I've been to yeah. a lot of Mexico, but I've never been there and I've never been to San Miguel de Allende. I've been yeah. everywhere else. Yeah, but they're right close. Such a beautiful, beautiful country. It's so bad that it has such corrupt government. If it wasn't for the corrupt government, Mexico would be untouchable. You know, it's a, it's a magnificent place. And I live in San Diego, as you mentioned earlier. The, the central part of Mexico has a climate very similar to San Diego's. Most of the people live in this very temperate zone. It's perfect. Like Cuernavaca. Uh, yeah. Climate is perfect. And then the soils, because of the volcanoes, um, the soils are perfect. So it you can grow anything with a long growing season. There's lots of minerals. There, they have the, the two coasts. There's a lot. I mean, it's rich in natural resources and everything. And yeah, it could really be a powerhouse. I remember one Christmas I went to back to Puerto Rico to celebrate Christmas, and I was living in Mexico at the time, Mexico City, so it's thousands of feet above the, the sea level. Right. And when I went to Puerto Rico, I uh, did not sleep for two days wow. because my blood was so filled with oxygen because living <laughs> up there, you have to get used to that. So your body produces red blood cells in excess. Mm -hmm. So then you go to sea level and you feel like you don't need to sleep. It's an incredible effect. But the legends yeah. of the Santa Paula Cemetery, what is that? So the Santa Paula Cemetery is in Guadalajara. It's in one of the one of the oldest cemeteries in the city, and there are several legends, urban legends, ghost stories, and one is of a little boy called Nachito, and a lot of people go there just to see his grave. And it was a little boy who died of a heart attack, and um, he's buried there, and people see his ghost. This little kid running around, people leave little toys, teddy bears and stuff. And there's, there are charities that go there and, um, and collect the toys to donate to, you know, orphanages and children's hospitals and stuff like that. But that is the most famous legend there of this little boy who died of a heart attack. There's also a vampire that supposedly was buried there and a tree grew on his grave. So it's a... It's a place that has a lot of urban legends, and it's it's right near the main cathedral, the Metropolitan Cathedral downtown, like within walking distance. But yeah, it's a pretty beautiful place. There's wonderful architecture throughout, and it's a, a beautiful old cemetery. Speaking of cathedrals, I'll say something in a moment, and I've said it before. But as I travel to my places in, in, in Mexico, I have to get, go for hours through Native American country in the United States. But something very similar between Mexico and here is that you see these little, I guess it's when somebody dies on the road, you see these little crosses with right. ornaments and flowers all the time. But then when you go to Mexico, they have little chapels that they built. You probably fit one or two people to pray there inside, but that's how spiritual they are. Have you seen these little chapels all over the place? On the, on yeah, the, sure. And a lot of those times they're they're put there because a miracle happened, you know, or something appeared there. So it's um, it's also in addition to someone possibly dying, they'll have a little thing, a little memorial there. But if something miraculous happened on that spot, they'll erect something like that, too. One uh, disappointment I got, not with Mexico at all, but with the Catholic Church, was when I was living there, I was very curious. I always had my camcorder. This is early 1990s. I was filming everything. <laughs> and I went to the cathedral area, and all of a sudden I see these blue tarps covering the side of the cathedral. And as you know, I believe it's a cathedral, one of the big churches there at the Zócalo, that's kind of leaning do you remember that? It's kind of leaning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on the side, I decided to just go in, even though it says no access. So I go in and I look inside and there were some people that looked like uh, archaeologists, you know, brushes on the floor and this and that. And I see some structures coming out of the ground. And then I asked somebody who told me, first of all, we'll get out of here. But I said, can you please tell me what's going on there? And they say, well, you know, as you can see, this church, this cathedral was built on top of a Mayan monument. And the same thing happens with most of the big churches in Mexico and throughout Latin America. 
So I thought, oh gosh, so they're hiding whatever was there before. And this happens in pretty much in every culture. You've seen that, right? Yeah. You know, they're not only hiding something, but also a lot of these churches were built on sacred native places. Correct. Because they wanted the Indians, they wanted the natives to continue going there for devotion purpose, to the right, new. Right. Right. To the new god or goddess. Or, you know, the Virgin Mary could be seen as a goddess to to uh, a newly converted native. Convert or else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you'll have a lot of these uh, structures built on old uh, pyramids and temples. In fact, the biggest pyramid in the world by volume, Cholula, which is outside of Mexico City, has a church on top of it. And, um, yeah, people think that that ruined everything. And, yeah, I don't know. Depends on what, you know, what side of the argument you're on. But, um, yeah, it, it's the, the Spanish had a hard time converting masses of people. So they tried to do whatever they could to to make that easier on themselves. And so that's uh, where a lot of that comes from. And destroying the old power structure, too. They had to do that fairly quickly. So that's another reason. I remember when I went to the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan. Mm -hmm. And if you think of, I've never been to Egypt, but I hear that it's just massive. You just have no idea until you, unless you're there. Well, my experience was with, with this one. And it just took me hours to get to the top. And it's just incredible how they built these monuments all over the world, more or less at the same time. So I always say that, there must have been some connection or they must have been an exchange of knowledge between these cultures to have built similar monuments all over the world. Well, I tend to be a little bit more skeptical than that. I don't know. Um, there could possibly be some connection. And I've seen connections between, you know, distant places. Like I've been to Easter Island. And I've been to the ruins of Peru, and they look very similar, especially like some of the masonry. Um, right. I don't know if we can chalk that up to coincidence. Uh, some of the things in Mexico are similar to places, uh, some other places in other parts of the world. There are a lot of different theories. There's even one theory I explored that came out in the late 1800s that was connected to Madame Blavatsky and the theosophy movement that said that Mexico was the mother civilization to all civilizations in the world, even Egypt, that a queen from, um, from the Maya area crossed the ocean and founded the Egyptian civilization. So I don't know. There's, and it seems like there are a lot of different ancient people who think that there are all of these different ancient groups that set up shop in Mexico, whether it's the Indus Valley civilizations, there are people out there who allege that people from Mahenjo-Daro and those places in, in the Indus Valley from thousands of years ago migrated to Mexico, that there's an Egyptian connection, that there's connections with other civilizations too. So it's and they all make their cases. They all make their cases. And you've got to scratch your head. But then there's a part of me that wants to believe that stuff. And there's a great deal of belief involved. There's a part of me that wants to believe that stuff. But then there's a part of me that believes that that sort of thing takes away from the native grown genius of the peoples that were um, in Mexico before co the contact. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's up in the air. I continue to investigate. So all options are on the table as far as I'm concerned. And this is why it's important to say we don't know yet. We're still looking. Yeah. Well, I wonder of the people who say, I found the answer. That's the yeah. one I have to doubt. You know, <laughs> we keep looking at uh, uh, my theory is that all these pyramids were not built neither by the Mayas, the Incas, the Aztecs, the Egyptians. They were there. They were made by another civilization, and then they came along. 
Then they came along. Do you have the theory of Atlantis, Lemuria, and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. But I think they're older than we're led to believe. In the United States alone, we have the Grand Canyon. You have the story of Gene Kincaid at the beginning of the last century, right. where he found an entrance, found Egyptian hieroglyphs and, and, and stuff there. And right now, not even federal authorities can get there. I mean, we have the, the U.S. Forest Service, the, the Arizona uh, parks cannot go there either. And it's protected. Nobody's allowed to go there. And I think it's because they don't want us to know where we come from. All the giant bones that were discarded by the Smithsonian, all that information that Kincaid sent them, never to be returned. So there's a concerted effort. If I had to end this segment right now, is that they, the elite, they don't want us to know where we come from. A lot of the history that we've been told is a lie. Have you found a lot of anomalies that you say, wait a minute, I was taught this is cool, but this doesn't make sense. And when I was in Mexico, I confirmed so many of that. Well, you know what? Like I said, there are counterparts to different things in Mexico, Bermuda Triangle, Lake Monsters, all that stuff. They have a they have something similar to the Smithsonian down there that is even more draconian and harsher than the Smithsonian, the National Institute of Anthropology and History. There's a there's an office in every single state in Mexico, and they put the kibosh on certain archaeological digs and certain projects, and they they uh, take away a lot of evidence. So there's something like that going on down there, and I think of I think of one case in particular the the dinosaur figures of Acambaro, and I did a show on that. In the 1930s and 40s, there was a, a German man who had a little hacienda down there, and he was unearthing these dinosaur figures. And people in the, the local areas like, yeah, we've dug those up for years. And then there was a formal scientific investigation into this, and some of these figurines were dated to 2,000 years ago. And then the National Institute of Anthropology and History came on the scene and shut down all digs and said, you're not going to investigate this anymore. There will be no more permits in, um, issued to dig for these artifacts anymore. So, You see, this conversation that you and I are having is opening a lot of doors of things that have happened to me in the past 11, 12 years doing this show. And before I, I end, let me just say before I forget... There was an individual, a gentleman, an American citizen, who used to be in contact with me. He lived in El Salvador. And just a quick story, he used to be in law enforcement in, I believe it was Seattle or someone in Washington State. And he uncovered some corruption there. And he was almost killed. He was beat up at night, apparently, by the people that he was investigating. And he was led, they thought he was dead. But he immediately, boom, left the country and went to live in El Salvador, got married there, had his life there. And ever since I started Veritas, he was in touch with me all the time, sending me all sorts of stuff and stuff about history. But the one thing I remember was the National Museum in El Salvador. He said there was a curator there uh, with a PhD, she was in charge, who wanted to tell me some information about stuff of our history that we're not allowed to know. All of a sudden, when I was getting ready to do the interview, she disappeared. Not only did she disappear, but he told me he went to the museum and found yellow ribbons around it with people from the United Nations there not allowing anybody to come in for a few days. I've never said this story before, but Tim, Tim, it was his name. Tim, if you're still around and you hear me, please get back in touch with me because I'd like to reconnect with you. But a lot of stuff happens in that area of the world, not only Mexico, which is part of North America, but in Central America. All that area is full of history that we're not allowed to know. Yeah, and I wonder what the heck are we not allowed to know and why? You know, that's those are some big questions. Because the elite doesn't want us to take control, apparently. I mean, I always say it that the biggest conspiracy of all is the secret to our own potential. But anyway, that's for another. You see how many doors are opening that may seem unrelated to what we're discussing. But we have to take a one and only break. How can people 
buy your books, learn more about your work, your podcast, your, not a podcast, is it a podcast? Would you call it a podcast? Yeah, it's a podcast that's available for free on iTunes. And you can go to my website, MexicoUnexplained.com. You can download it from there. And it's also, I put the podcast to a slide, to slideshows. So on YouTube, I now have over 170 shows. So you can actually see images that go along with my narration. So there's the YouTube channel, there's uh, MexicoUnexplained.com, and then on iTunes you can download the podcast. And then you can buy my book through Amazon, or you can get an autographed, personalized copy on my website. And I have two books out now, uh, Mexico Unexplained and Mexican Monsters, about the cryptids and legendary creatures of Mexico. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, Robert Biddo, discussing Mexico Unexplained. And a lot more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>